Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast. This week's episode is the opening chapters of Douglas Wilson's For a Glory and a Covering. Listen to the full audiobook now on the Canon app. Chapter 1. Marriage, Trinity, and Incarnation. So let us suppose that, by the grace of God, we have repented of our discontent and want to be teachable. We want to hear the word of truth in truth and make applications according to the Spirit and not according to our idea of what the letter ought to have been. We also want to apply whatever we learn to ourselves first and not to our spouse first. Finally, we want to live as married couples within the triune life of God. But how are we to understand the significance of God's triune life in our marriages? Consider these two passages. And did not he make one? Yet had he the residue of the Spirit. And wherefore one? That he might seek a godly seed. Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. Malachi 2.15 Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me, and the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. John seventeen twenty through 23 Malachi tells husbands that they must take heed to their spirits, so that they will not deal treacherously with the wife of their youth, their wife by covenant. God made husband and wife, not for a seed, but for a godly seed, and so the oneness between husband and wife must be preserved. In his great prayer of John 17, the Lord Jesus is praying for oneness among all believers. Oneness between husband and wife is just one application of this, but it is a very important application. First, Jesus prayed for this result, and this obviously means that such a result between believing husband and wife is the will of God. Verse 20. Jesus wants believers to be one in the same kind of way that the Father and Son are one, and he wants us to be one by means of participation in their unity, verse 21. We are not to imitate the triune unity from a distance. We are to imitate it from within. The result is a powerful statement of the gospel, verse 21. The glory that the Father gave the Son, the Son has given to believers, so that they might be one, verse 22. Christ is in us, and the Father is in Christ with the result that we are made perfect in one. Verse 23. Again, the world knows this, that the Father sent the Son into the world, and the world also knows that the Father loves believers just as he loves his Son. Verse 23. In order to grasp this rightly, we first have to grasp a point of grammar. The difference between indicatives, or statements, and imperatives, or commands. The pattern of godliness in Scripture is to build imperatives on the foundation of indicatives. God and His Word 
says that something is true. We hear and believe and therefore are enabled to reckon in our lives the truth that this is so. We hear in order to be able to do by faith alone. Only faith hears this rightly. You have died to sin in Christ, therefore die to sin. This is gospel. Die to sin, and you will therefore die in Christ to sin. This is a false gospel. The gospel is all about what God has done, and what we must therefore do as a consequence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Philippians 2.12b-13 We are to work out what God works in, and nothing else. But what is God not working in? Too many Christians read this as saying that God is working in nice things, and that therefore we are to work out nice things. But this is nothing but superficial moralism. We are not told to work out what we think would be pleasant for God to have worked in, had we been consulted. We are told to work out our salvation, for God is working in us to will and to do for His good pleasure. This transcends the nature of a spiritual back rub. It's more like spiritual boot camp. So what is He working in? In short, God is working in Trinitarian realities. He is working Himself into us. He is our salvation, and He is triune. So what does this mean in marriage? Please remember, again, that the message of this chapter is not telling you what you ought to be working in. This is a description of what God is doing in you, whether you ever read a book like this or not. I am urging you to stop fighting it, and I am exhorting you to gladly embrace what God is doing anyway. He is doing it, so just come along quietly. Work it out is another way of saying, deal with it. This is Trinitarian glory. We are to understand what God is already doing and then live accordingly. In the married state, we are to indwell one another as the Father indwells the Son and the Son the Father, John 17, 21. Husbands are to bestow glory on their wives and wives are to render glory to their husbands, verse 22. Why exchange glory? Why not leave the glory where it was? Why rearrange the furniture? The answer is, in order to be one as God is one. God is not a static unit with static glory. The triune God is the one in whom there is an eternal and mutual bestowal and receiving of glory. As the Father loves the Son and has loved us, so husbands and wives love one another. Verse 23. We will pursue this further later but this is Trinitarian imitation. But never from a distance. We do not imitate God from 50 million miles away. God has ushered us into communion with Himself, and so we worship God from within that fellowship. We should remember that these truths are for all believers, and not just for married couples. But given what Scripture teaches us about marriage, the gospel, and oneness, we know that all these general truths about believers can be manifested in marriage first in a clearer, more heightened way. 
Marriage is the showcase of Christian unity. In a clearer, more heightened way, marriage is the showcase of Christian unity. This will be made even more evident when we address what Scripture teaches us about the Incarnation. It is not possible to talk about the Trinity without talking about the One who fully revealed the triune nature of God to us, the Lord Jesus. He is the eternal Word of God, the One who took on our flesh in order to bring us to salvation, revealing the Father to us. This is why the doctrines of the Trinity and the Incarnation must be considered together. In the Incarnation, the eternally begotten Son of God became the Son of Mary, and through her, a genuine Son of Adam. This also has a profound impact on what it means to be human, and it cannot help but affect our marriages. Consider what Paul says about Christ. He raised Christ from the dead and set Him at His own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And hath put all things under His feet, and gave Him to be the head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him that filleth all in all. Ephesians 1, 20-23 We are picking up this text in mid-sentence. The Apostle Paul has been recording his prayer for the Ephesians, in which he requests that they would begin to comprehend the nature of what had been bestowed upon them in Christ. In Christ, certain realities have been given to us as redeemed creatures, and it is possible for these creatures to begin to grasp the ungraspable by the grace of God. The essence of this gift is that God took a ragtag bunch of sinners and transformed them into the fullness of His Son. There are many truths worth pondering in this text, but the one we need to note here is that Christ is described as the head over all things to the church, His body, the fullness of Him who fills all things. By becoming a bridegroom, Christ received fullness from His bride even though He was the one who filled all things. This dependence on His bride does not challenge His headship. Rather, it is the basis for it. In the limited, bounded space of human marriage, how would this translate? The husband is the head over his house for the wife, to the wife who is his body, who is his fullness, even though his authority fills the house. Thinking about this rapidly brings us to the point where thought staggers. We have trouble, understandably, talking about the Trinity raw. It is not possible for us to grasp what the Trinity is like by obtaining, say, the schematic diagrams, and then go off and apply that to our marriages. Even though we might say that the Trinity is logically prior to the Incarnation, because the Trinity describes the way God is apart from creation or redemption, we cannot access the Trinity unless the triune God reveals Himself to us, and He has chosen to do this in the incarnation of His Son. Jesus says that if we have seen Him, we have seen the Father. John 14, 6-9 But there is another step to take as well. God has revealed the Trinity to us through a marriage. We learn about the triune God through an understanding of Christ and the Church 
but we are also called to understand Christ and the church by applying what we are taught about that to our own marriages. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Ephesians 5.25 As the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Ephesians 5.24 We don't really learn anything raw in a systematics class. Rather, we are to learn everything in what might be called an incarnational loop, applying what theology we know results in greater understanding of that theology, which in turn results in better application, and so on. Of course, I must emphasize that husbands and wives are not called to duplicate or reenact the precise relationship between Christ and the church. We cannot do anything of the kind. Husbands are not called to die for their wives as a sinless substitutionary atonement, for example. The emphasis of this teaching is not marital hubris. Nevertheless, we are explicitly commanded to pattern our lives after his example, and we are given many things that we can imitate. One very common problem is a superficial or thoughtless imitation of Christ's example. We read Ephesians 5, see that husbands and wives are like Christ and the church, and immediately translate this into a minimal, nice thought for the day. Husbands love your wives a lot. It is somewhat better if we pay close attention to what Christ is described as actually doing in that chapter. And so we see that this involves sacrifice, teaching, nourishing, cherishing, and so on. This is important in its place, but we forget that the entire book of Ephesians is crammed with teaching about Christ and the church, including the text we have just been considering. Recall that in our discussion of the Trinity, we talked about mutual indwelling. The Father and the Son are one, for example. They are not one because they have merged, but rather because the distinct Father indwells the Son, and the Son indwells the Father, while remaining fully and completely themselves. The Spirit indwells the Father and the Son as well. Each person of the Trinity fully indwells the others without confusion of the persons. Theologians call this mutual indwelling perichoresis. We have the same kind of thing in marriage. Husbands must say, I am the head of my body, my wife. I am the head of the one who fills me. The wife must say, I am the fullness of the one who is my head. Anyone who comes away from a careful reading of the Apostle Paul's teaching on marriage with the idea that the husband is the boss and the wife is the slave, is someone not to be trusted with any text. In his fine book, Trinity and Reality, Ralph Smith puts it this way, There is a slander that says because Christianity teaches that man is the head of his home, it permits men to abuse their wives. What the Bible really teaches is very different. According to the Bible, to be the leader means to sacrifice oneself for the other, as Christ sacrificed himself for the church. If Christ is the pattern for the husband, and he is, then what the Bible calls for is self-sacrificial love that glorifies the wife. This is not a view that promotes abuse of any kind. The first chapter of Ephesians, therefore, helps us to make sense of the fifth chapter. 
If you come to the fifth chapter with the wrong assumptions about what has been going on, you will be hopelessly overwhelmed by a rigid marriage law. If all that Christ's coming did was raise the ethical standard to a higher level, then our condition is hopeless. But if we have received the grace revealed in the Incarnation, the grace St. Paul prayed that we might have in Ephesians 1, 17-18, what then? If you have the spirit of wisdom and revelation, how will you think of your husband or wife? If the eyes of your understanding are enlightened, and you know how the saints are a glorious inheritance for Christ, then you know what a husband and a wife are, and you will not know it until then. Chapter 2 Imitation It may seem odd to include a chapter on imitation in a marriage book, but it is actually a very important aspect of marriage. In fact, it is so important to godliness in any marriage that the world has an entire framework of countermeasures arrayed against it, so that most of us already have prejudices firmly in place. We are individualists at heart, and the world has trained us to mock imitation as necessarily a mindless conformism. We are prepared and set, lest anyone entice us into some kind of obedience. But consider these scriptural passages that teach imitation. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Ephesians 5, 1-2 I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you. For though ye have ten thousand instructors in Christ, yet have ye not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. Wherefore I beseech you, be ye followers of me. 1 Corinthians 4.14-16 Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. 1 Corinthians 11.1 1. The word that is translated here as follower is the Greek word Mimetes, which means imitator. This means that when you learn by imitation, you do what the other person is doing. When you learn in the textbook way, you do what the other is saying or writing. There is a place for this, but we don't really need to make room for it. We all know to do this. Most of us have spent a lifetime learning many lessons from books but we do need to make room for the type of imitation required of us in the above texts. In Ephesians 5, we are told to imitate God in the same way that dear children imitate their parents, verse 1. And that means that we are to walk in love sacrificially, verse 2. Well, yes, someone might say, but this is imitation of God, not sinful human beings. But this imitation of God is compared to the imitation that children render to parents. We are not told to avoid imitating mere mortals. We are called to it. We are created this way. It is a design feature. In 1 Corinthians 4, the apostle beseeches his Corinthian converts to imitate him, verse 16. Later in chapter 11, he says that he imitates Christ, and he urges the Corinthians to imitate him in his imitation, verse 1. The elders of the church are told not to be lords over God's heritage, but rather to be examples to the flock, 1 Peter 5.3. St. Paul tells Timothy to set his life 
in word, in love, in spirit, in faith, and in purity, as an example to the believers. 1 Timothy 4.12 The people of God are told to consider the outcome of the way of life that is set by the leaders of the church. Hebrews 13.7 and 17 Now why does God give His people all these examples? So that they can imitate them. Not only is imitation a godly thing as defined this way, but it is the way to godliness. The Greek word for this imitation, mimetis, is the root of our word mimicry. The difference between learning by mimicry and learning by abstract information transfer is the difference between someone who is fluent in a language and someone who has just memorized the paradigms in the back of their textbook. God has created us to learn this way. You can see it with an adoring two-year-old sister following her masterful four-year-old brother around the living room or up and down the driveway. What he says, she says, a millisecond later, monkey see, monkey do. This seems like mindless copying, but it is the foundation of all creaturely wisdom. In scripture, learning is profoundly incarnational, but we have been taught in countless ways that true knowledge is abstract and disembodied. When people begin to self-consciously imitate their parents and their elders, it is not long before the charges of mind control and cult begin to fly. Part of the godly fruit of incarnational imitation is like-mindedness, which the Bible praises in a number of places, Romans 15, 5-6, and Philippians 2, 2, and 20, and which our modern world condemns. It is not even hard to find Christians who are wary of like-mindedness. Instead, they say, you have to be an individual. You have to think for yourself. Be your own dog. You must not imitate others, period. The result of this vain exercise, like throwing rocks at the moon, does not eliminate imitation. It only guarantees the imitation of fools. So how does this apply to marriage? Given the fact that God has made the world in this way, and given that imitation is built into all authority relationships, God, man, parents, children, elders, congregation, and given that marriage is a relationship in which husband and wife are expressly told to model their relationship after Christ and the church, what follows from this? Because of the closeness of marriage, imitation works both ways. Husbands learn from their wives by imitation, and wives learn from their husbands by imitation. But the initiative and fundamental responsibility for all this lies with the husband. He should be able to say to his wife with a straight face, I want you to imitate me in this. Now there are two basic reasons why these words stick in our throats. The first is the propaganda of modernity that we have already addressed. We think about saying something like that and our minds fill up with imaginary scenarios. Who do you think you are? But humility does not mean adopting an ah shucks posture. Real humility is doing what God says to do. But the second reason these words stick in a husband's throat is that these words condemn us. We hesitate to say them for the same reason we hesitate in the middle of the Lord's Prayer. If we ask God to forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, then it might appear that we are really asking God not to forgive us at all. In the same way, husbands might rather say, Do as I say, not as I do. 
but pressure for some kind of imitation is already occurring. If husbands are selfish and sinful, then that is the closest living model that his wife has to imitate. If she does not desire to imitate that, and she shouldn't, she is nevertheless swimming against the current, the current that embodied disobedience establishes in every home. If he doesn't want her to imitate him because of his sin, he must recognize that the sin still creates a demand for imitation. So a husband is providing a model for imitation regardless of what he does. His behavior simply controls whether it is a good model or a bad one. The husband and father teaches through the example of his entire demeanor. That demeanor is potent and will result in imitation down to the bone, including what he thinks of as secret sins. But, by the grace of God, his example is potent in the other direction as well. Because of how God created the world, if a man and woman live together for any length of time, they will imitate one another. The only question is whether this will be done self-consciously, for good, as part of their mutual disciplines and sanctification, or in a haphazard way, to the detriment of both husband and wife. If the imitation is being done by two Christians who are self-consciously, by faith, dwelling with one another in peace, and within one another by the grace of God, then this imitation will be a profound help for good. This approach of faith will not mean that husband and wife will slavishly copy one another's faults, but rather that they will encourage one another where they are respectively weak, and establish one another in love where they are respectively strong. Imitation is not a way to lose our individuality for good. It is part of the gospel pattern by which we receive back what we lose for the sake of Christ. As we imitate one another in this way, we become more truly ourselves. Chapter 3. The Virtue of Jealousy In the scriptures, jealousy is a virtue. Like all good things, it can be bent and distorted into sin. But for some reason, we have come to think that it is necessarily sinful, which is not the case at all. As a result, we in the modern world are not nearly jealous enough. Our rejection of this virtue of jealousy is one of the ways we have refused to imitate God. Take heed to thyself, lest thou make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land whither thou goest, lest it be for a snare in the midst of thee. But ye shall destroy their altars, break their images, and cut down their groves. For thou shalt worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. Lest thou make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they go a-whoring after their gods, and do sacrifice unto their gods, and one call thee, and thou eat of his sacrifice, and thou take of their daughters unto thy sons, and their daughters go a-whoring after their gods, and make thy sons go a-whoring after their gods. Thou shalt make thee no molten gods. Exodus 34, 12-17 Throughout Scripture, idolatry is consistently compared to adultery. The marital image is a strong one, and thus it is not at all a stretch to learn about jealousy in a marital context from the Bible's general teaching about God's jealousy in the presence of idols. And thus, it is not at all a stretch to learn about jealousy in a marital context from the Bible's general teaching about God's jealousy in the presence of idols. In the above text, 
God prohibits Israel from making covenant with the inhabitants of the land. Verse 12. The Jews are to wage total religious war against them, destroying all the instruments of their idolatry. Verse 13. The Israelites were to worship no other God but the Lord, and the reason for this is that His name is Jealous. Verse 14. Single-minded worship of the only God is necessary to prevent whoring after other gods. Verse 15. The result of this idolatrous worship will be intermarriages, which will result in further liturgical adulteration. Verse 16. To avoid this situation, the Israelites were to make no molten gods. Verse 17. Godly jealousy is fierce. The scriptural testimony is very clear on that point. Moreover, the passages that refer to jealousy are overwhelmingly positive, and the fact that our default assumptions about jealousy are negative should tell us something about how unscriptural our worldview has become. As we have seen, God's name is jealous, Exodus 34:14. In the Ten Commandments, God visits the iniquity of the fathers to three and four generations precisely because of his jealousy, Exodus 25 and Deuteronomy 5.9. We are not to carve images for ourselves to worship because God is a consuming fire, a jealous God, Deuteronomy 4.24. We should fear God and swear by His name, being identified with that name, mindful of His capacity for anger and judgment. Why? He is a jealous God, Deuteronomy 6.15. Joshua knew that the Israelites' easy believism would not stand the test of God's jealousy, Joshua 24.19. The iconoclastic and unreasonable Puritan, the Tishbite roaring out of the desert who did not come to initiate constructive dialogue, and the reforming king who hates idols, are all preeminent examples of godliness. This is because, in a holy way, jealousy is intractable, righteous, and in many cases altogether terrifying. But jealousy is also tender. Jealousy is not just given to us as a reaction to a straying wife. It is also portrayed as a glorious motive for redemption. Jealousy is constructive and redemptive as well as being hard as nails. Why will God have mercy on the whole house of Israel? Because he is jealous for his name. Ezekiel 39.25 God will show pity upon his people because he is jealous for his land. Joel 2.18 God takes revenge against Nineveh on behalf of his people because he is a jealous God. Nahum 1, 2-3 God spoke comforting words to Zechariah because he was jealous for Jerusalem. Zechariah 1, 14 God returns to Zion because of his great jealousy. Zechariah 8, 2 God's prophets and apostles, as imitators of God, had this same kind of redemptive jealousy. When the Lord comes to Elijah, Elijah complains that he had been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, 1 Kings 19, 10-14. The Apostle Paul had the same heart, for I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ, 2 Corinthians eleven two. So what about jealousy in marriage? Scripture acknowledges that jealousy is a very real issue in marriage, and is possibly a legitimate concern. In Numbers 5, we find a description of trial by ordeal. 
This is not a trial in the tradition of some medieval Monty Python setup. If a man gets jealous of his wife and he has no evidence, he may bring her to the tabernacle to have her name cleared or not. Numbers 5:14 and 30 through 31. In this case, a remarkable thing had to happen in order to convict her. Jesus was quite possibly evoking this law in the famous case of the woman caught in adultery. Look at the similarity in the charge, the place of accusation, and the fact that Jesus wrote in the dust on the ground, John 8, 1-11. Because of our negative views of jealousy, we think it is only operative when a couple is on the brink of divorce and a third party is already in the picture. This is often when ungodly jealousy starts. But often, the couple is in that unenviable position because they were never jealous enough in the full scriptural sense. Godly jealousy should be part of what we are. It is a function of loyalty. God's name is Jealous. This is the way He is. And we should imitate Him. Jealousy is a communicable attribute, and we are expected to have it. Godly jealousy should be insightful, not blind. Insightful jealousy sees what no one else is seeing. But so do men with hallucinations, which is why godly jealousy remembers the rules of evidence. Being jealous does not grant us telepathic powers, and we should remember that the jealous one is under authority as well. False accusations cost the accuser, Deuteronomy 22.19. Godly jealousy is not really about making particular accusations. Jealousy builds a fence but does not make assertions about the individuals who don't know why you put the fence there. You can lock your doors at night without accusing every person who walks by of attempted thievery, and you can pull back when someone crosses your friendly line without accusing that person of attempted adultery. Godly jealousy sets particular standards for friendships, for get-togethers, for business lunches, for entertainment standards, for dress, and so on. Many fathers, for example, are not nearly jealous enough when it comes to how their daughters dress, and they might be surprised at how much it costs to have a daughter look that cheap. By its very nature, jealousy is possessive, but jealousy goes wrong when it tries to possess things that it has no rightful claim to. The issue is not whether jealousy will be possessive, but rather whether it will be a godly jealousy that is possessive of the right things or an ungodly jealousy that is possessive of the wrong things or trivial things. A man who is possessive of his wife's sexual favors is possessive in the right way. A man who wants to deny other men the right to ever look at his wife's face, which is a common Muslim standard, is being possessive where he has no right to be. There is no indication in scripture that a husband has the right or responsibility to set that kind of standard. A man or a woman should be jealous over things like sexual infidelity, emotional flirtation, significant amounts of times spent elsewhere when it should be spent at home, money squandered when it should be invested in the home, and so forth. Assuming a balance that rejects the wrong kind of possessiveness, one of the things we must learn in this modern age is the fact that the right kind of possessiveness is a good thing, and that it helps establish real security in the marriage. By cultivating this possessiveness, we are becoming like Jesus Christ and His Bride. 
We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the All of Christ for All of Life podcast. Download the Canon app now to listen to the full audiobook today.